I worry about the printing, about hyperinflation, about all the stuff that I, I think might happen. I hope doesn't happen because it could lead to a dark dystopian place in some ways. But if we build Bitcoin infrastructure and onboard people quickly enough, then maybe it can be somewhat of a smooth upgrade for society. Welcome to the Tucson Bitcoin Podcast. Today, my guests are Kelly Land and Stephen Cole. So Kelly is a real estate developer and the author of a substack called Bitcoin Urbanism, which is a great, great uh, tool, you know, if you want to learn about what could the future hold for real estate under Bitcoin standard. You know, it's really interesting to dive into and look at, like, how does how does city planning change and, and how does building materials uh, get an architecture get better, you know, and get away from these stupid cookie cutter houses and, you know, just cheaply made buildings. Um, Steven is an investor in the space. He is very instrumental in getting a lot of Bitcoin companies off the ground and getting started. And uh, he also started the Arizona Bitcoin Network, which is a meetup uh, based out of Phoenix. And it is awesome. It is so much fun uh, to go. We're going to be having one on uh, May 20th up in Phoenix. And uh, I'm really, really excited. You know, check it out. If you want to get away from all the FUD and all the silliness that, you know, you see on Twitter, you know, just going around the mainstream about Bitcoin boiling the oceans. And it's just like the same stupid FUD over and over again. Um, Bitcoin meetups are great. You know, you can stop being demoralized and hang out with people that are actually solution oriented. You know, and if you have friends or family that don't really get it, bring them, you know, and they might have a good conversation with some other people and, and, and learn a bit. Um, and even if you don't know anything and you, you want to learn, Bitcoin meetups are great. We just had a great one on Saturday in Tucson, and it was just so awesome to see that there are Bitcoiners here, you know, people that are really, really interested in building a better, brighter future and not uh, falling into a dystopian nightmare. So, yeah, I hope you enjoy this conversation and have a good one. Well, good to have you on, guys. It's fun. Good to be here. Hi, Alex. Thank you for setting this up. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, like you were saying, Kelly, a little bit of a desert pleb sesh we got going today. That's right. Easy Bitcoiners. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy. It feels like the Bitcoiners are profits right now. Like everything that we've been talking about, inflation, um, you know, all the chaos and, and disorder, uh, you know, K- Kelly, you were talking about crumbling infrastructure and we're seeing that left and right. Um, seems like we're profits, but we're, I think just what ultimately is happening is everybody was calling out what was happening and then it's gotten to a point where we can't ignore it. But yeah. What do you, what do you guys think about that? Uh, it's pretty, effort, uh, well, it's pretty interesting that, you know, we hammer on the fact that, uh, the infrastructure is old and uh, the civil engineering society says that we get a D for, you know, just about everything. And then uh, once you're in a situation where um, you're put under stress, that everything basically falls apart. So if you're gonna, if you're gonna uh, learn, I guess what the the status really is, then just turn the heat up a little bit, uh, have a, a couple things go wrong. And then, uh, you know, see what happens. And I think uh, the whole Eastern seaboard is uh, seeing what's happening, especially when they've got an entire pipeline company that's running on software that's quite old from what I understand. 
at least by you know software standards if anything's five years old in software standards it might as well be 100 years old pretty much yeah it seems like the pipeline situation over there particularly on the east coast is getting pretty spicy um, i think it's similar to like it takes a while for these kinds of things to make it to mainstream media sometimes right where whether it was the pandemic or whether it's just significant macro econ things i feel like often when something's an important big deal and they don't want people to know about it twitter will just kind of be buzzing there will be like this little energetic undertone on twitter to things and i feel like that's the phase right now of the gasoline shortage and the cell phone footage of crazy lines in certain cities to pump gas and some stations just being out um and it doesn't seem from what I've heard from friends that CNN's really talking about it, the mainstream media is really talking about it, uh, which would make sense because you don't want to incite a panic. But, but yeah, uh, I just wonder if the effects of that are going to continue to ripple through a little bit more of the country and then eventually be harder to ignore. I hope not. I hope it just, you know, <laughs> turns out wonderfully because people not being able to get gasoline is very real pain, but, uh, but you know, be prepared. Yeah, just in case. I think the other thing to consider too, it's not just gasoline, it's the, it's natural gas, it's jet fuel. Um, yep. I was talking to somebody earlier, I just came back from uh, the Caribbean uh, this last Friday. And if the, if the system had gone down a day earlier, I'd still be stuck there. I read an article, I think it was this morning saying that American has had to cease all long haul flights along the Eastern seaboard because they don't have jet fuel. Yeah, I'm supposed to fly to New York Thursday, and I'm keeping a close eye on this. <laughs> I'm just worried about driving up to Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, never mind getting on a plane, right? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, think I, we depend on a, a separate system. I remember in uh, high school, there was a leak in the, uh, uh, the fuel pipe from, basically, there's a pipe that runs from Texas all the way to California to transport fuel. And there was a leak somewhere in Southern Arizona. Um, I think it was actually out by Wilcox, Alex. And so they had to dig it up and they had to shut down the entire, essentially the entire gas supply coming out of Texas to Arizona for like five days in order to do the environmental cleanup and fix it and all these other things. But, you know, for a matter of five days, Phoenix basically had zero gasoline. So it was the same thing that you see on, uh, Twitter with all of the different places in the South or the, I guess along the Eastern seaboard generally, you know, taking videos of all the cars lined up. It was the same thing here that if you didn't, uh, if you weren't lucky enough to have gas before it all happened, there was a very slim chance that you got gas while it was, you know, quote unquote short. So I, I saw the best little tongue in cheek tweet about this, uh, this whole situation earlier today. I think it was from Dave Bradley um and uh he was quote tweeting someone who was talking about the the gas shortage and uh and he's like which failing system are we talking about here ethereum or the nation state <laughs> that's true both, both seem to have significant problems with gas well they both operate in a very similar way where it's just kind of like patch as you go and it's not about creating a sustainable, solid uh, infrastructure on either project. And it's just a complete mess. And I just feel bad for people, you know, because the price will go up probably and then it'll break and then it'll go down. And we, 
we just don't have that with Bitcoin. Like it's an entirely different philosophy and it's like bulletproof. And yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, and yeah I, it's hard and to I put, even, the, even to the, put the, into the, words, right? Yeah. The, the infrastructure for something like Bitcoin is very much, uh, slow slow and steady and then you you try to break it as much as possible before you actually ever use it um you know in, in a good way it's kind of like what space is, spacex is doing with the starship models you know they built i think it was 18 or 19 of them before they finally were able to land it safely and then you know then it didn't blow up as well so i think it's a very similar process where if anybody's introducing anything you know it's a very long cycle to to bring a new you know code into the code base and then people are always tinkering with the hardware to try and make it more energy efficient and uh uh you know crank out as many hashes as possible so it's like there's a very good system of checks and balances in place and it's not the the move fast and break things ethos it's the it's the don't you know don't break anything on the main net, go play with it somewhere else and then come back when you're ready. I agree with that completely. Um, I think it's really common, unfortunately, especially in these other cryptocurrency projects to see this sort of, you know, shrug it off like, oh, okay, the smart contract platform got hacked, a bunch of money got stolen, and everybody has this attitude of like, shrug, it'll be okay. It's only a hundred million dollars, Stephen. Come on. Right, right. And I just, it took time to appreciate because the narrative, right, in a lot of the mainstream is like Bitcoin is old and crufty and slow and there's all this hot, flashy new stuff happening elsewhere. But over time, you just really start to understand and appreciate why Bitcoin takes that sort of tortoise approach, if it's like the tortoise and the hare, right, of very gradual improvements, conservative development style, even having an adversarial mindset when it comes to thinking about how the system can be attacked and how some change could be manipulated to have undesirable effects. And, and that's really the only project that I see that is consistently taking that bulletproof safe approach to it. And that's what I want for my money, right? If you're storing right. your value somewhere, the hard work and all that you've created in the world, that's exactly the kind of culture I want around protecting it. Yeah, you kind of sound like a boomer when you say that. Like, I like gold <laughs> because I can physically hold it, you know, and that's... <laughs> I like my right? Bitcoin because my ASICs don't change. <laughs> I literally, like I tweeted something the other day about how I don't hold any other cryptocurrencies or anything else for like just Bitcoin. And a bunch of the replies were like, oh, you're such a Bitcoin boomer. Like, you know, <laughs> it's like, man, that's where we're at with all this. <laughs> Fine. Well, I'm, I'll embrace I'm, it. I mean, I think that's so legitimate. And what people need to understand is like Bitcoin is not volatile. It's the fiat money that's volatile. Like we have a sound... Uh, monetary policy that isn't going to be changed and we know what's going to happen 30 days or 30 years from now and you don't know what's going to happen with fiat you know 30 days let alone 30 seconds from now you know something like insane or crazy is going to be manipulated and like it, i think people are waking up to this like the entire fiat system is like enron pretty much like it is just like a complete disaster writing ready to just blow up and uh you know that's why bitcoin is so important um one of, one of the things you also tweeted steven which is kind of interesting you you said that you've never seen um a use case for like a private blockchain within a company uh 
um there's a lot of discussion about stuff like that still happening of different companies wanting to use that uh why why don't you think there's ever like a real legitimate reason to use a private blockchain like that yeah i was stoked on the idea initially like many years ago when i was um you know obviously newer to the space and kind of getting my bearings and all this i was pretty excited about that so my background is web technology like internet tech and infrastructure and i thought okay this is some new data structure right it's you know, saw a different place between like databases and networks. So networks are really good at distribution. Databases are really good at like state and being authoritative there. And this blockchain thing is kind of an interesting in between with different trade-offs. And so I thought, oh, maybe there are these clever use cases for that um, internally within an organization. But the more and more that I really looked into the details there, I, I just struggled to actually find a place where an old school, boring MySQL relational database wouldn't do a better job and wouldn't be a simpler, just better tool for the task. Um, I think a lot of that comes down to the trust minimization that is really the, the core advantage you get with a blockchain and especially like a public blockchain like Bitcoins. Um, when you introduce trust into it, it's um it's much harder like if you're you know one corporation ibm is trying to do a lot with like enterprise blockchain for example um you you know if if everything within the blockchain can kind of be manipulated by ibm incorporated then you don't need a lot of the slow clunkiness and the plumbing that you kind of have to incur as a cost to run a blockchain it can just be simpler and cheaper and more performant to do that same thing with a good old-fashioned database. Uh, I think a lot of the attempts at this stuff are really just to kind of ride the hype. It's to be viewed as forward thinking. So, you know, look at us, we're IBM, we're using blockchain. Um, but once you really drill into the substance of it and the value proposition, I think a great litmus test is, can you describe the value proposition of your project, your startup, your company's solution, whatever it is, without using the word blockchain? And if so, then maybe it's valid. Like maybe the blockchain is just kind of this implementation detail. It's like, the, it just happens to be the right tool for the job. But if you can't get people to be excited about what you're doing without using the word blockchain in like the pitch, then to me, that's a red flag. That seems like you're just trying to kind of ride the hype and, and it might be simpler to do things the other way. So yeah, to this day, I've still never seen what I consider a compelling use case, anything that I would invest in or you know think is solid for a private enterprise blockchain like, um, like Hyperledger or anything like that. I think it's all noise. Makes sense, yeah. Yeah, decentralized databases that don't work as yeah. efficiently. And often it's it's the edge cases where you get eaten alive. Like even if some, if you're trying to do those things where you're like tying physical objects in the real world to a blockchain, for example, like, oh, we're going to track banana logistics, like shipping around the world, like on the blockchain, or we're going to tokenize, you know, uh, real estate and all of that, then I think those are like, they're well-intentioned projects in many cases, but you just get eaten alive by these edge cases where even if 75% of the workflows might be valid in some way, there's all this like, okay, if you 
if you create some cryptographic you know token of real estate and then somebody acquires it and they lose their private keys what happens like do they really not own that real estate anymore if somebody across the world hacks their wallet does that person own that real estate now can the other person no longer like physically walk inside of it or exert influence over it like like what does that really mean so uh, and then the answer you get is usually, oh, well, there's this exception process where you appeal to this like federation or this central authority, and then they correct that, you know, that mistake. And so at that point, it's really just coming back to this centralized list and it gets to the place where it's cheaper to run a database again. Man, I remember telling people how cool it would be to put real estate on a blockchain in 2018 and how <laughs> dumb that is. <laughs> I, mean, I, was, yeah. I was part of that organization that tried, or uh, International <laughs> Blockchain Real Estate Association. That was run I by uh, Ragnar yeah. uh, Leaf Racer. So I remember I that. They did, uh, they, did a test, they did a test transaction using a color token in 2018, I think in Cook County that they were trying to um, transfer title and they used basic, it was a very basic deed. Essentially, they wanted to see if they could record it if they wanted to. Um, so I think they were able to do it, if I remember correctly. But, uh, you know, kind of going from there, it was basically competing with um, uh, land registries, uh, which are essentially centralized databases. So like if you're in a country, I think uh, Israel, and uh, Norway were cases that we heard people come and speak about where they have a single singular land registry. Whereas in the US, we use a county recording system. So like if you are in Maricopa County um, or Pima, you know, you would go to your local recording deal or the website or whoever, then that's where you would record the transfer of title. Whereas uh, Ibrea was trying to figure out how to do it uh, uh, using the Bitcoin blockchain. So at least it wasn't kind of like a shit coin, but um, it was, uh, you, you run into the jurisdictional problem where it's like, okay, well, if you record it here, who cares? Or, you know, like you said, if you lose your keys to uh, the Bitcoin being recorded as part of the color coin on the, uh, the blockchain, you know, how, how are you gonna transfer that color coin, you know, as far as transferring title goes? Cause you still totally. have to have a UTXO in order to move it. Um, so that's, you know, it's, uh, it's yet to be solved. It's, it's, a, it's, uh, it's one of those things on the meat space list problems where it's like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that one later. We're, uh, we've got a different problem now. We'll fix the money and then we'll fix everything else. Totally. Yeah. It makes sense. And I think that's like part of the reason why, um, we've seen that, it, that movement move more <clears throat> digital, like into NFTs and stuff like that. Um, because I think there's a little bit less room to, so there, there was an interesting, um, example of this that was presented to me. So like, we all know, I think that the whole NFT thing, the, um, ownership over JPEGs is, is kind of stupid. Um, but, uh, um, on like in a video game for instance, so I guess Samson Mao is explaining or is experimenting with like digital ownership over vehicles in his spaceship video game. I think that's kind of interesting. You know, it's like one of those ideas that um, is presented in the sovereign individual is like we, the internet really changes things. It, it's a jurisdiction or it is a borderless um, uh, wild west place, you know, and I think that 
there may be a future and it'd probably be built on Bitcoin, not Ethereum, but um, it's probably just noise and silliness to focus on right now. But yeah, that's kind of where I'm at is I, I think the notion of NFTs is actually promising. I feel like there could be some substance there in the very, very long term. But right now, I just think it's wildly overhyped and mm. it's mostly noise. Um, so I'm the main reason why I'm not taking them too seriously right now is because the vast majority are built on Ethereum. And I'm skeptical that Ethereum is going to be around uh, and just be a reliable platform long term. So whatever you put on it, I just don't know if Ethereum will be able to preserve that value or if it's just going to get sort of centralized to the point that it fades into obscurity someday. Um, so where I've kind of arrived is like once NFTs become more popular on Bitcoin or like Bitcoin based platforms such as Liquid or RGB, uh, then I'm absolutely going to start paying attention. I still, I don't think I would personally buy them or invest in them for a while just versus the opportunity cost of holding Bitcoin, which I'm much more, you know, bullish on. I think, uh, I think if I'm going to allocate capital, it's going to be there. But when we get to the later stages of hyper Bitcoinization, then uh, at some point, NFTs could be really interesting, I think. And those video game use cases you mentioned do seem pretty rad to me. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of like implementing Bitcoin into video games is just mind boggling. It's, it, it is really like stepping into Ready Player One. Um, and that, I mean, that book is just so crazy to me. Um, and I think, you know, it will be in to some degree where we, where we go. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, inflation, it, it, it's a serious issue right now. And I think everybody's starting to wake up to it and realize it. I kind of got upset with um, the local news. They, they brought me on to talk about Dogecoin, which is really dumb. And I wanted to talk about inflation. Um, so probably a bad part. switch. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably a bad part on my, uh, on my end of, um, actually, I don't know. I, I did fine, but yeah, it's I think inflation. opportunity, Alex. Yeah. And I wore my fold hat for Will. Hopefully he's happy. Represent. But, um, um, but yeah, it's a serious issue right now. And uh, Max Kaiser was on the Tim Pool podcast this week. It was really interesting. One of the things he said is, uh, you know, what we're seeing with this Bitcoin price rise is uh, the dollar is hyperinflating against Bitcoin. Um, and I think that was a, a pretty good description. But yeah, I mean, Kelly, you, you work in... Uh, um, real estate development like what the heck is going on with lumber and all of these things <laughs> well uh lumber, lumber is i think it came down i don't know if, how much it came down today or if it, if it came down today i try to only look once a day because crying more than once a day is probably not you know a good thing to do but it got up to uh the index was up to 1700 and it came back down a little bit and that's uh i think that's almost a 4x rise over the period of may so it's probably like close to 13 months um and it has been very painful i have paid bills for the last year uh, but i have some leftover some leftover lumber that i can sell back for probably more than i bought it which will you know ease and ease in the blow but it's still not not enough to make up the difference um but i think it's it's interesting that the inflation topic comes up because it's not just like the end products anymore. I mean, a lot of the manufacturing indexes or um, like Drudge has put out 
uh, posts about it. All of those guys are complaining about prices going up anywhere, you know, two, five, eight, sometimes 10 or 12%. And those are their, their input costs for raw materials. Um, um, and I've seen articles discussing, uh, you know, a new bull market commodities, which if anybody's uh, ever studied that before are never, you know, one or two or five X increases. They're like 10 or 20, sometimes even a hundred X in uh, uh, cost. And it's just one of those things where it's, it's starting to show up everywhere. Um, it's just wild. You know, there's, there's a huge, um, especially, you know, being in Arizona and in Phoenix, the, the quantity of homes or essentially residential places of shelter that are being demanded and the supply, the, the gap is widening. So there's even more people moving here and there's just not enough, there's not enough spaces for people to live. Um, and that's a reflection of the price, which is also, you know, um, a form of inflation to a degree. I mean, you've got to be able to price in your inflation for demand generally, and then what your actual underlying costs are. And uh, when you've got both, it's a double whammy for sure. And um, yeah, it's, it's to the point now where it's, it's everywhere. I'm being change ordered to death for materials <laughs> prices. And it's not, it's not fun, but uh, you, you pretty much, you kind of got to roll with it. Um, hopefully lumber will come back down from the moon and uh, uh, that'll help out a lot of people. Um, you have some of those phone calls with your framers or whoever's bidding your projects and especially your lumber guys. Cause it's not, it's not so much uh, here's the price. We'll get it to you. It's well, here's the price right now. And I don't even know if I can find it. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's even, it's even crazier because the, all they're doing is they're basically quoting you the last, the last bid plus 5%. And then it's like, okay, well, now that we got off the phone, I have to go back and I have to see if it's even available anymore because there's just, you know, they're, they're just not enough being produced. Um, and I think, uh, uh, I can't remember where I saw it. Somebody had a list of the mills in the Pacific Northwest that, you know, are, are, not up and running, but they could be turned on, right? And it's something like only 45% of the available mill space or mill uh, capacity rather is being used. And a lot of it's because of the shutdowns. A lot of it's because uh, overcapacity from 2008 that just hasn't really been brought back online. But, you know, as, as uh, Bitcoiners and famous Austrians or, you know, famously trying to be Austrian, you know, all of this is a process. It's not like you can go in and turn on you know, a mill because your mills depended on, you know, freight getting you materials to the mill, um, you know, in the form of trees and then, you know, dicing it all up. You got to get all the labor, then you've got to get the transportation out of there and all the things that go with that, right? Um, it's a process. So starting those things back up, you know, when they're making hand over fist is not exactly a top priority, especially on top of that, We've got, you know, Biden bucks keeping everybody at home um, with either the unemployment or the stimulus checks, all, all the different things going on. There's a huge disincentive for people to actually go to work. I mean, they could make what, 10 to 15% more, maybe 20% more if they actually worked, but you know, why would you do that? Yeah, if you, it's like asking, would you take a, you know, 15% pay cut to be able to play at home all day? 
and most yeah. people probably yeah i got it's a huge backlog like the, of video games that i can use you know <laughs> right yeah yeah go yeah. go play with some nft spaceships on samson mao's video game <laughs> hey if i were in a video game yeah i'd play infinite fleet uh it, uh, it looks pretty badass um but yeah it feels like the incentives are just broken wildly from many sides you know the sort of central bank and the money supply, I think being at the base of it, like the ultimate root that it's stemming from, but then these various regulatory bodies and agencies um, kind of layers atop that are just mangling the price signals. And that's something that I've, you know, I, I would not consider myself an economic, <laughs> nice background. <laughs> I, I would not uh, consider myself an economics authority or experts, but I would say, you know, I'm an Austrian economics enthusiast and such an important principle from that is just money as an information signal, like the price as an information signal, that is price being used as the mechanism to communicate sort of value and cost and worth. And if you as a supplier of some commodity, whether it's lumber or copper or gold, what have you, um, you know, if there's some unexpected scenario, some labor shortage, some natural disaster, then that is the most effective way for you to communicate that is through price. And when you introduce these middlemen and these agencies that try to centrally plan and dictate what an acceptable price is, what the price should be, um, you know, it, it just does not work um, at scale. And unfortunately, the system that we've existed in for essentially all of our lives is designed around central planning. So we've never really had laissez-faire free market capitalism where prices can convey in this pristine way kind of what, what the market is and what the state of things is. But, uh, but I think Bitcoin finally gives us a hope of achieving a system like that, where, where we can truly have a free market and voluntary interactions and very efficient capitalism that results from it. And hopefully human flourishing, um, you know, and uh, unprecedented productivity because the money is good, the supply can't be manipulated, and the, the price signals are much more difficult to artificially mangle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's great. I, a lot of, a lot of conversations I have with people about Bitcoin, especially older people is, you know, they have this question, they ask, what is Bitcoin backed by? You know, and I think a good answer for that is like, well, it's, it's backed by the market, you know, what the market decides based on a, you know, demand for it, which people demand it because of its principles, you know, because of its um, properties, you know, that make it predictable. And, you know, like you, like you said, like it, it, we've never had laissez-faire, uh, markets or, or really like pure capitalism in this country. And it's, it's really interesting to watch people like rail on capitalism and argue for more central planning when central planning in this situation is what is the problem, you know? <laughs> and totally. it's, it's so backwards um, to me, you know, it's like, you know, yeah. The, yeah. There's a, there's a chart that I love that circulates around Twitter every once in a while that kind of stacks up various monies side by side uh, with the attributes that make good money and it kind of compares them, right? So it's like Bitcoin, fiat, gold, I think is the one that usually makes the rounds in, these, in, in this image. And 
Uh, and then you have the qualities that make a good money, right? So is it durable? Is it portable? Is it scarce? Um, is it easy to assay or verify the integrity of? And, and then does it have an established history, right? And Bitcoin just crushes it. Like when you line up these candidates for money um, and just look at the fundamentals, Bitcoin absolutely knocks it out of the park. It, you know, it wins in all of those categories except established history. And that's kind of where gold has the biggest advantage, right? Because gold has been sound money for thousands of years, the best money that's been available to people. But what I love about that is, you know, if that's the only category that Bitcoin's not winning in is established history, then a different way to phrase that is just all that Bitcoin needs is time. Um, like if Bitcoin just continues to exist and, you know, do be what it is, do what it's doing, then gradually that history becomes established and maybe it will be established very quickly because now we have the internet and Twitter to share information, which we didn't for most of history. Hmm. So it can establish that, that trust and that reputation much more quickly. I always find it interesting too, that when critics address Bitcoin, that they don't, even, even some of the Austrian ones that they don't use the time function. Right. And I, I just, I mean, kind of blows me away that, that, you know, if you're going to analyze something that they pick it up and they just look at it like through a microscope in a frozen period of time, like today, or, um, uh, who's, who's the guy who always tweets, not, uh, not, uh, not Peter Schiff, but there's another guy who always tweets, you know, when Bitcoin goes down like 10 or 15%. Is it Steve Hankey who does it? Yeah, yeah, I think it's Steve uh, Hank or Hankey, yeah. Yeah, whatever his name is. But yeah. it's like they're, they're looking at it, you know, in a specific period of time in which essentially advantages whatever position that they're trying to put out, right? Well, it's like, well, you know, if you look at it from 2000, uh, 2009, 2010 forwards, you know, how are they analyzing it then? I think Pierre Richard is, is famous for uh, using the, the, the tweet stamp function and price and putting in the different naysayers tweets over the course of like, you know, the first time they open their mouth, like in 2013 or 2014. And there's zero, zero perception of the history of what's really going on. You know, they just keep, whenever they look at it, they're just looking at it through that, that small fraction of time. And then they're posting an analysis without looking at anything else. And to me, it's just like, well, first of all, like human action occurs through time. People do things through time. It's not, you know, you, you can't cheat the system that way. You know, you can't build a house instantly. You can't do anything. Instantly. You can't even tweet the garbage they tweet instantly, right? So the, the notion that you analyze and make an argument through just a specific, you know, pinpoint of time, as opposed to looking at something like Bitcoin where it's like, okay, it's been here for 12 years now. Um, what has occurred over this arc and where do we think this arc is going? I mean, Bitcoiners use the, uh, I think it was uh, Mahu, uh, was it Mahu? Murad, Murad Mamadov. Murad, there you go. Yeah, Murad. So Murad was the one who created like the regression, the, uh, the regression chart with all the different points and stops along the way, right? So it's like, okay, well, if we use these theorems, you know, let's put Mises to the test, let's put his feet to the fire and say, hey, you know, if, if this were to be money, if this were to really happen, is this what would happen? As opposed to, it's like, ah, no, that's dumb. 
I looked at it yesterday. It's down 5%. Uh, move on. It's like, come on, man. It's been around for 12 years. You've got to use at least some semblance of an analysis. So, 100%. It blows my mind when I see, you know, even like maybe if your specialty is short term trading, like if you're a day trader, then I can kind of understand being locked into a very short term time frame analysis like that but i feel like if you're an economist i believe he is part of cato like the cato institute yeah like it blows my mind that he can't zoom out and like do you live your entire life just like look do you look down at your feet when you walk all the time like is that how you like gauge the like quality of like where you're at and what's going on yeah, that's I've what it a, feels like you're doing on these charts we should, we should use that uh that background the pepe background where it's, you know it's like a split down the middle and he's wearing like a a friar's robe or whatever Oh, uh, that's Norman. probably my favorite me. And it's on the Cato side, it's got like Windows XP. <laughs> yeah. Kills me. So we got we got Phil Gibson in the in the chat from the Sioux Saloon. Awesome podcast. Good man. Um, what up, Phil? Yeah. So he asks, uh, y'all Citadel gonna be on some beachfront property in Arizona? <laughs> <laughs> A little healthy trolling. will be. He'll be at the bar singing. Yeah. <laughs> We got, we've got some bodies of water out here. Don't exactly have oceans. I do miss the Southern California ocean, but we got some bodies of water. Yeah, I mean, it's not that far from, uh, uh, what's it called? Down in Mexico, there's a Rocky, Rocky point. point. Yeah, I've yet to yeah. go, but... Um, Same, I've heard yeah. good things. Yeah, so speaking of, which, which one of us is going to uh, forego some Bitcoin and buy the entire peninsula, the Baja Sur Peninsula? Yeah, post hyper Bitcoinization, we'll have to rock paper scissors for you know which <laughs> which one's gonna buy the Baja Peninsula. <laughs> it's probably not gonna be me. That's good opsec, Alex. Yeah, I mean, excellent, I, well played. Yeah, I mean there are, there definitely are some lakes, especially up in Phoenix, that are really nice to to get in a boating accident if you need to. Yep. Good boat That's territory. Very true. Yeah. yeah. Was, yeah, I mean, that's like another market that's crazy that I was hearing about, like the boat market right now is just out of this world. Um, really? Is it? Yeah. I mean, it feels like everything's just getting more expensive. Well, it, I mean, this is something that people were talking about with inflation is like all this new money entered into um, circulation, then people didn't really have places to, to spend it. And as soon as they started lifting the lockdowns, and the velocity of money uh, went up, it was going to go bananas um, all around. And I mean, I don't know if that's, uh, I mean, that might be true or not, but it, it, like people definitely are trying, they've been locked down for a year, so they're willing to go spend big bucks on on stuff to go do things, you know, like go boat or whatever. But um, I mean, it's, it's pretty wild, like looking at uh, <laughs> it, the, um, justifications from the mainstream media of like food inflation that we're seeing right now they're like uh food's up because people have been eating at home more <laughs> like i don't think that's true <laughs> like this is not the this is not the inflation you seek yeah yeah um it, and it feels like there are all these less obvious somewhat sinister ways that inflation creeps in that are hard to notice where it's like shrinkflation right and marty bent was pointing this out fantastically recently and a, an example is like paper towels so paper towels outperformed the s p 500 in the, in the last year <laughs> because the s p 500 went up like 13 percent uh, but then the value of paper towels uh, went up 14 percent 
because and in an interesting way so the uh the price stayed the same and in you know what they were using was like costco paper towels the price stayed the same but you get 14 percent less square footage of, of the paper towel so the quality of the product is being quietly eaten away um, mm -hmm. as they try to hide just mask the inflation and I think that happens everywhere, right? Like a McDonald's hamburger today has a lot of garbage in it and preservatives that it didn't have 50 years ago. Um, and like the food becomes more fiat and lower quality over time. I worry in what's happening with lumber, especially right now, as we were touching on earlier, I have to wonder if there are builders out there that are getting pressured to be more creative and a little bit flexible on the guidelines and the standards for like how much wood they're using in residential homes that they're building, um, you know, so it, it just creeps into all these different facets of society and unsettling to think about. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, Kelly, have you, is there like a big difference um, in quality of houses built before 1971 and after 1971? Um, I would argue yes, but it's more, it's it's more about sure the underlying materials that were used you know a lot of those houses back then were built with masonry which is a superior um it's a superior material it's going to last much longer especially you know a concrete block is going to last you know forever essentially as long as you take care of it um like the pantheon is a great example that's a two thousand year old concrete mm -hmm. building uh, they use a very good concrete but still it's there um, one thing to think about when it comes to that, though, is the, the way kind of the homes are built. Essentially, they, they build them one point in time as like a fad. So like a house that was built in the 70s may have like better materials and stuff, but the, the design itself wasn't necessarily built to be timeless, right? If it's a typical, uh, I guess you could say, today it'd be like a cookie cutter home, right, is what we would call it. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't build something that way. I'm sure you know, there are houses that were built in classical, uh, with classical uh, designs and methods and materials that, you know, you could still use today. But um, um, I would definitely say that uh, homes built in the 70s, 50 years ago are going to last more than a home that you build today. It's just one of those things where you've got substitute materials, lumber is much cheaper, much easier to work with and much faster to build with. Um, it's not going to last forever. And for the most part, you know, you've got to use all the drywall or all these other things that go, you know, around it, insulation, blah, blah, blah. So there, there's more pieces to the puzzle, you know, as far as when you build something. So um, if you buy a house that was built, then you're going to have great bones if you want to, you know, change it. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're working with um, like, a, you know, we call it a stick home. Um, you have to get a little bit further in to see, you know, where your your loads uh, load bearing walls are and where your trusses are, or if there's beams, all these other different things. I'm sure you've seen seen or been in homes that are remodeled where they they open up the entire middle of the house and then there's a couple posts just randomly, right? Those are holding up a beam. Um, in a house, you know, from the '70s, you're much less likely to have that because essentially the entire outer wall you know, is holding everything up as opposed to, you know, one or two beams in, you know, the middle of a house. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you, you adapt your home designs based on the materials that you're using. And if you're using more readily available value engineered materials, 
um, that's going to affect, you know, the longevity of your house. I think I've written uh, a couple times that like, I, I wouldn't peg the average home built today to last more than, you know, 25 to 30 years without like total remodels, you know, on the inside, whether that's the cabinets, all these other things, you know? Um, so for example, the homes built in the seventies, like a ranch style home is basically, you know, people are going in and gutting them and they're removing walls uh, so that they have like a, like an open floor plan or like a great room floor plan or whatever they want to call it. Um, so, you know, you can do that when you're using wood. Um, obviously if you have a masonry wall in the middle of your house, it's a little bit harder to move, but um, yeah, it's just, you know, that that's going to last much longer. And that was just built as the norm. Um, it's just substitution effect over time, you know, cheaper materials that are going to, they're going to eat your lunch. Um, it's just a, it's just a game theory thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. If I, if I were ever to build a Citadel, I'd like to somehow get my hands on one of the old abandoned Titan missile silos. I don't know if you guys have checked those out. Yeah. It's, you can buy those. It's they're amazing. Crazy. You say that actually, because a buddy of mine sent me a DM recently with a Zillow link and on Zillow it's they're selling this underground bunker not far from I think it's like two hours south of Phoenix somewhere I kind of want to go drive and check it out it's like 400 and something thousand dollars for this legit very like heavy metal underground missile silo type of thing yeah I mean they're so crazy like it's just uh, I mean yeah, we have you, to burrow you, down and like complete the the Matrix prophecy, right? Yeah, <laughs> the Matrix little, was a documentary. Little do we know that Alex is currently broadcasting from his own missile silo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you bought it, didn't you? That's so why we're it's not on the southern border. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I wish. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what I'll just start saying. I'm broadcasting from the the, from the Tucson bunker. Bitcoin missile silo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bitcoin you gotta bunker. Put, you got to put you your go. tinfoil hat on too. That oh, Bitcoin bunker. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I mean, if there was ever a year to wear a tin foil hat, it would be now, you know, people have like made fun of the preppers and, and people that have really been uneasy about where society is going for a while and feel like conspiracy theories are mainstream now, or again, it's the, yeah, I'm so much more comfortable just being intellectually honest about that than I used to like. You know, I used to kind of work in like corporate America, Silicon Valley. And so there was some career risk that I felt from being too honest about what I believed when it comes to like politics or these things that are labeled conspiracy theories. And then even after I exited from the corporate world a few years ago, I still kind of just felt like this, this pressure to not be, get that conspiracy theorist label attached to you. And I almost want to wear that with a badge of pride now. I feel like, especially in the last 18 months, the things that have transpired in the world, like the conspiracy theorists have been vindicated. I would wear a conspiracy theorist badge proudly and just, you know, shout, like speak your truth from the mountaintops is kind of the, the feeling of empowerment that I know I feel personally after seeing all of the nonsense recently and that I hope others feel because I think that's the best hope we have of fighting against that right other than like you know people storing their value in bitcoin um to kind of defund a lot of those institutions i think just bravely speaking whatever you believe the truth is is 
important and, and underappreciated in society. Hashtag Alex Jones was right. That's what's up. God bless that man. I mean, he makes a lot more sense than CNN does. Yeah, and he's got <laughs> so, you know, and he's got some ridiculous like lizard people at the center of the world stuff. And like, you know, I'm not on board with everything he says, but I think he's been right in important ways. And and a lot of people like him have and don't get enough credit for it. Yeah. I mean, my whole my whole thing with conspiracy theories is like they're they're interesting to get into for sure um but it's really like difficult to actually prove and put a whole lot of belief into it and there's like things that are happening right in front of us that are really like harmful to the general society so like inflation being probably one of the biggest ones you know you just like gut everybody's wealth and funnel it into a few people's hands and you know their financial system like with all the bailouts and the corporate welfare and all this nonsense is just that's what I focus on and try and get people into because, and, and that's like one, like you can't do anything about the space aliens, you know, like Alex Jones talking about, like there's nothing you can legitimately do um, if that were true, but you can legitimately do something about the inflation, about the brokenness of the monetary system, about like the predatory lending and, you know, all of these other issues that we see. And uh, I mean, that's kind of my, my my take on it personally and like it helps me keep my sanity because i think like you know these people that dive into the every conspiracy theory you know whether they're true or not um it, it's really demoralizing you know it, it's just like it and, and you know to some degree like we have to call out stuff that like or well to a, lot, a huge degree we have to call out stuff that is just like awful you know that's going on um but at the end of the day, like we also have to focus on like what we can legitimately do, you know, to change things and, and fix things as a society and a community. But yeah, that, that's just my take on it personally. <laughs> like I, I agree very much. And stuff I've started to think a lot more about in recent months is kind of developing that web of trust and applying a web of trust to different areas of your life, right? And I think most fundamentally that starts with your local community, like the people that you know, the bonds and the relationships that you have with them and meeting and building those bonds with people who share a certain set of core values and core beliefs and, you know, self-sovereignty would be a big one for me, um, is I think just going to become more and more important, especially if society at a large scale continues to get weirder <laughs> than knowing like-minded people and physically being around them. Something that eventually, if you take it to its far enough conclusion, could become, you know, a citadel. Maybe it manifests that way. But just uh, that, that emphasis on community. And then online, kind of doing the same thing digitally, right? Like establishing secure encrypted communications on <laughs> signal or key base with people that you trust um using key base decentralized sucks. come on yeah key yeah i know they got acquired by zoom and uh i i'm ramping them down so signals probably i'll say like the least bad in my mind right now they're kind of shit coiny but uh <laughs> that is what it is um but yeah like you know using bitcoin using secure communications um just like both digitally and physically to the extent that you can building those webs of trust and that that community is really important yeah that's huge yeah i'm really excited uh start nine is going to be launching matrix here pretty soon 
Um, I'm going to try and get everybody using Matrix because I think that's like the ultimate. If you can self-host it instead of using a service like Signal, they, they have a good track record over at Signal, but I think self-hosting is so powerful. i totally with you on that. Um, Opening lightning channels to people you trust. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it's really convenient knowing, you know, real estate developer, you know, as we're talking about <laughs> Citadels for the future. Right. Is that right? <laughs> I, I've decided that the the desert citadel will be made of copper, uh, mm. with uh, turquoise as an accent, and um, yes, there there is no input. This is not this is not an open system. I have decided. Hey, I, as counterintuitive as it sounds, I, I think monarchy is uh, underappreciated. <laughs> so, <you know. laughs> And I have to say, I consider you a connoisseur of Citadel imagery and aesthetics. I enjoy that on your Twitter feed. Yeah, you know, I try, I try to post the, the stuff I see with uh, uh, a lot of those accounts I add to uh, uh, the Bitcoin urbanism list. So if you guys don't follow that list, follow that list, because there's a lot of good people on oh, there. Nice. And I, 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 I always add more people. But yeah, whenever I see like a cool, a cool house or a location or whatever, I, I just throw it up. And then I have a thing for lampposts, which we don't have to talk about. But uh, uh, I'm intrigued. Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. I mean, there's a lot of really cool places out there. Um, I think my favorite was the one that I said I would buy and donate to the Mises Institute because <laughs> it was in Vienna, so that they could have a physical location to teach, you know, to teach uh, Austrian economics. But uh, <clears throat> for the most part, you know, I think it'll be. It'll be interesting to see because especially from like my perspective, like a citadel is, is like, a, uh, like a city state, right? You know, a lot of people use the citadel as like the self-sovereign, you know, place of the individual self. And to me, it's like, well, I mean, sure. But you could also have, you know, if we all retreated to Austin or to Miami as some would have it, you know, that in itself is a citadel. It's just like-minded people in the same, you know, physical geographic space. So think about what all the good we could accomplish, you know, in the same space, you know, with the same mindset, trying to achieve the same goal, which is a fantastic human experience, I would imagine. Um, it's been done before in many different ventures. But um, yeah, I think it's pretty cool. I'm looking forward to it. I need to post more articles, though. I've been thinking about uh, uh, submitting some stuff locally. I don't know. Alex, did they, did they reach out to you because of the podcast? Or how did, how did you end up on the local program talking about the dog coin? Oh, I reached out to them oh, like, probably six months ago. And then they just remembered me. So, yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a I, lot I easier. That, yeah, <laughs> that is such a good point you make, Kelly. About like it's not this binary thing where it's like you're either kind of living as you are today, and then like boom, someday you're in this physical like fortress structure, and that's a citadel. There's sort of this whole spectrum to that citadel manifestation, right? And uh, it can yeah just start with like the cities as they are today or the neighborhoods as they are today and more like-minded people kind of congregating there and even before that there's this digital step right where you can kind of opt out in place and maybe what we're doing now is almost a, a micro example of that like this conversation and bitcoin twitter is like even if you can't or won't yet physically move um, you can almost build these digital citadels where, and thanks to Bitcoin, you can store your value in them, so to speak. So, uh, so yeah, I think it helps just like enable that it's this 
achievable, more like near-term low friction milestone on that spectrum along the way to what could be a future fancier Citadel. Yeah. Yeah. I would de yeah. I definitely agree that the, the digital Citadel is, you know, akin to Bitcoin Twitter or, you know, even these, these conversations, you know, it's all, it's all within, you know, the same, same gradient, the same realm, you know, just walking around to different places, listening to different conversations, just as anybody, you know, can join, can join and listen to us or post questions and all that. So it's just, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. Totally. And meetups too. Yeah. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yep. Definite Any, meetups. Anyone within driving distance of, uh, of Phoenix, Arizona or Tucson, Arizona, we got some good meetups going. So come out. Yeah, they're great. I, it, it, the Bitcoin meetups have helped me keep my sanity, you know, over the past year, like there's a while I was a part of a couple that were online, you know, I, there was, my week was kind of like a, um, a roller coaster where like Mondays were the day that the meetup happened and I, you know, felt amazing. And then slowly, slowly, slowly down to Sunday. And then Monday, it's just like felt great <laughs> again. Um, like drained over the period of days where you have to be making small talk about what's on Netflix this week. And, and then you get to like, you know, be with Bitcoiners and you get this burst of good energy from talking about real stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, that aspect of like being around like minded individuals is so important, you know, to have people, because I think that's like how a lot of people are feeling in general is just like isolated and being bombarded with all these different ideologies that don't necessarily meet their values. And it's, it's incredibly isolating. So like, fine. I, I just had a conversation, you know, with the single mom today, you know, and that's, um, she's been stuck at home homeschooling her kids. And, you know, that's kind of what she was going through, you know, to a certain degree. And I just think like, I mean, there's so many telegram groups and um, all sorts of cool different networks of people. I mean, that's the thing that's been amazing about the internet is like how it's polarized society where you, you get, there used to be like kind of like a dominant narrative um, that was kind of dictated and people would kind of circulate around these, you know, different ideas. Like everybody would like watch the Oscars and, and now nobody watches the Oscars and there's like a million different, you know, options of consumption. You can go and interact with your, you know, community that you relate to. I think that's super interesting. Um, what you were saying with like digital online citadels almost. I mean, even these companies like Fold, all the comp all the employees live all over the country in our swan you know you've got some people living abroad and that's such a crazy crazy concept like there's not a localized office um that everybody goes to and that's shifting um but yeah and at some point you could even i'm interested to see if more pseudonymous companies will begin hmm. like if you do have a digital product and your service is online then you know, maybe like, do you still need a legal entity? Do you still want to incur the overhead of that? Do you still need um, to reveal your personal actual identities? Or if you have some way to establish credibility and trust with investors, with potential customers, maybe you can be this kind of, uh, you know, like you don't need a bank account even, um, you know, maybe you can kind of be this unstoppable company. Well, you're already seeing that with like, it's not really legal, but with like people that provide torrents and, uh, you know, live streaming services. So I, I yeah, I think for sure that'll be a thing. Totally. Like, 
Yeah. It's be interesting to see. Yeah, it's I don't know. The world's moving so quick. It's just hard to predict. Um so yeah, let's get into some predictions for the next year. So how many how many or well, we'll start next three years. How many how many trillions of dollars is Biden gonna print? <laughs> What'll the chart of M2 money look like? Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, they changed M2. So Yeah. They changed M1, right? M1's the one that looks absolutely like mind-boggling. It's just like a wall, <laughs> like a 90-degree angle in the supply. Cause and part of that I think is a function of them like changing the way they classify some assets. But uh but yeah, then M2, I mean M2 is not quite as jarring, but it still is like crazy. <laughs> and what like 40 percent or something um or no i think like 27 percent increase in the last 12 months it's crazy and i think too it's like what's different this time is essentially the normalization of transfer payments and the normalization of the fed will monetize it you know um so um i don't know i think if he prints he's printed what three trillion so far this year right um, with another two on deck i think with another two on deck so it's like at least even, three yeah well i mean think about it this way what how, how about if it gets so out of hand that it you know from here it doubles annually every year you know what i mean so that you know you've got your your when money dies situation if you guys haven't read that book you gotta read it but mm-hmm. you know where it's like the, the last time there you go you know the last the last round of money that they printed you know they were just adding multiple zeros to the dollar bills just because they thought that that was they were essentially every time they did it they doubled down on what they did before so if they you know if they printed you know if we're printing five trillion dollars now well there's there, you know the only way to fix five trillion dollars is to print ten trillion dollars and give it to everyone so that they can afford you know whatever it is they're buying at these new price increases well it's like well now there is a situation where that ten trillion is spent so how do you fix that? Well, do you give everybody $25 trillion? Like at that point, it's like, okay, you know, if you haven't figured out what's going on by now, you know, there's, there's, it just doesn't make any sense. So yeah, I I would, uh, I would wager that we would see a doubling each year uh, going forward. Dang. Terrifying to think about, but um. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's not out of the realm of possibility at all. And you're right, like the more they do it, the more people get used to it, the more um, kind of this, uh, the more whatever, I guess, uh, amenable to risk people will become because they remove the moral hazard from the equation, right? They This expectation develops that, oh, if this risky investment of mine doesn't go well, I'll just get bailed out. I'll get this free, easy money. And therefore the whole system becomes increasingly fragile over time. And, and so it gets harder to undo every time that you do it, you know, people expect you to keep doing it. There's this fantastic talk that Parker Lewis did at BitBlock Boom last year. Yeah. And I, he had this great line in it um, about, you know, there's that children's book, like if you give a mouse a cookie, um, <laughs> that, and his line was like, uh, if you give a mouse a cookie, 
he'll ask you to buy his triple C bonds. <laughs> like talking about how, like, you know, that's that they will just continue to want to be bailed out and have their junk assets uh, kind of purchased by the buyer of last resort, the Federal Reserve and the central banks, um, because that's what they've become used to and comfortable with. And so, yeah, um, I worry about the printing, about hyperinflation, about all the stuff that I, I think might happen. I hope doesn't happen because it could lead to a dark dystopian place in some ways. But if we build Bitcoin infrastructure and onboard people quickly enough, then maybe it can be somewhat of a smooth upgrade for society. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Russ asks... Um... He's in the chat. What What do you guys think happens to tax compliance when we continue printing at these levels? Ooh, I worry that there are going to be very specific taxes levied against Bitcoin, um, perhaps cryptocurrency, <clears throat> but I could even see them being just specifically Bitcoin where the, the justification is, oh, well, you know, this thing is, it's almost in the interest of national security and some with maybe sprinkle a few dashes of like these early Bitcoiners don't deserve this. You know, they clearly got lucky. They've had thousand Alex, returns. So you, Alex. <laughs> yeah. And so therefore we're going to tax them at an 80% capital gains rate or something along those lines, just, you know, mind melting levels. Um, Again, I hope it doesn't come to that. I hope we orange pill enough of the Senate and you know Congress that, uh, that they have skin in the game and wouldn't like that either. But I think when they get desperate, they will resort to desperate measures. And a lot of what the government does is enabled by the fact that they can print more money or that they have engineered this system that pushes people to buy their bonds. And so Bitcoin absolutely crushes their ability to print money. And it mostly crushes the incentive for anybody to buy bonds. So you have just starved the state of their primary source of funding for doing what they do, kind of their lifeblood in a way. Um, and the only thing they're left with is like capital gains tax and income tax. And so if you take away everything from over there, I just feel like the, the only mechanisms they have left are those things. And so getting more extreme with them would make sense in some ways. Well, I think it's interesting too. So to bring up when money dies again, you know, they, he has a, a whole portion of the, um, you know, the latter stages of the, of the, the hyperinflationary event where they basically say like they stopped collecting taxes because it was essentially more, they, they figured out that it was more expensive to try and collect taxes from people who essentially um, took their wealth out of the country and exchange it for, either for gold or dollars or the Swiss francs, like what, whatever they could get it out of the Deutschmark, like they got it out of the Deutschmark. And then they're trying to go after these people who have essentially fled the country with their wealth and they're just left with, you know, the normal people. So like, well, they're not going to be able to tax them because there's just too many of them. And then the cost of a force enforcement is now just through the roof because uh, essentially all the different union demands that were coming down the pipe especially for the government workers, like the government just simply couldn't afford it. And everything was just moving essentially too fast. It was moving faster than, than anybody could negotiate to keep up with. So, you know, at that point, it's just, you know, you toss your hands up in the air. I mean, it'll be, it'll be way different with, you know, digital, the 
I would say the digital abilities that the government has now with access to your bank account and all that stuff. But, you know, on the same token, if you're on the receiving end of these transfer payments, like what are they going to do? Transfer, you know, a thousand dollars and take, you know, $500 out. I mean, riots in the streets almost automatically, but uh, I think the enforcement of tax collection will be similar in circumstance to that where, you know, you can get, if you can catch a couple guys running out the door, they'll do it. But for that, for that part, you know, a lot of people are running for the door if they're not already out already. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you're already seeing that like Biden's talking about giving more funding to the IRS. Um, Russ, Russ commented again, he said unrealized capital gains and I, I'm totally with him. Yellen already dropped a hint that that's on the table, which, you know, is really scary. Um, yeah. I feel, I feel like that's ominous because even though it, just seemed to be dropping a hint like the idea didn't get completely lapped out of the room it wasn't viewed as totally insane by a lot of the mainstream you know i think there were some people nodding their heads going oh yeah maybe that's a good idea whereas decades ago it would have been completely insane and so just gradually we're progressing to this place where that's becoming normalized or more acceptable and for me that's the territory of like complete insanity being taxed on an like before you've sold an asset that you have is crazy to me that's like up and vote with your feet move kind of time well, the well other, i mean the it's... other thing with that is like where you know think think about the absolute demand for cash if you have to do something like that you know mo most even corporations don't carry more than a fraction of you know the cash as opposed to their total assets on their books like uh you know what are you going to do level you know level a 10 basis point tax well you know, if you're a billion dollar company, now you've got some extra cash that you got to come up with above and beyond what you need for your OPEX or just your, you know, your rainy day fund. So, oof. Big oof. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to be crazy. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, it, it's not, I don't see it as like too different from property taxes because they're essentially taxing you on a asset that you haven't sold but it's just on literally everything like i mean i i've got bullets and those are going up in value you know like through the roof like janet yellen are you going to be taxing me on my on my 45 cal that's you know was it a year two years ago was like i don't know like 10 cents a bullet and today is like that even that's expensive maybe like five, six, yeah, maybe like about 10 cents a bullet. And then today is like trading at it like a dollar a bullet. Like <laughs> bullets are precious uh, metals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Russ says, remember world economic forum says in 2030, you will own nothing and be happy. I will uh, not yes. live in the pod. I will not eat the bugs. No, nothing but my 12 seed words. Thank you very much. I don't, yeah, the World Economic Forum doesn't understand my ambitions to own that Titan missile silo, so. <laughs> <laughs> that is not priced in. <laughs> yeah. Where where can people follow your guys' work? Uh, for, for me, pretty much Twitter. Um, I'm S-then-C on Twitter, S-T-H-E-N-C. Tweet mostly about Bitcoin, a little bit about weird nutrition and society. Then uh, I'm on Twitter as well at K-T-L-A-N-N-A-N. And then I write at bitcoinurbanism.substack.com. Also have a Twitter handle, um, Bitcoin Urbanism. So stop by, check us all out. 
Alex, where yeah. can we find you? Oh, I'm easy. I'm on YouTube and I've actually been getting on uh, some alternative platforms recently for video and uh, I'm playing around with library right now, which is kind of a hassle. Um, and they shit coin. I get paid in shit coins, I guess. But um, um, I guess Sounds I'm just not ideal. That. <laughs> well, you know, convert it to Bitcoin. Um, but uh, uh, Rumble, I just created a channel, started uploading there twitter tucson bitcoin but the best way to meet all of us is come to the bitcoin meetups yeah well said uh yeah, yeah. meetup.com um az the az bitcoin network tucson bitcoin um got monthly events for both so uh would love to have anybody in the area i'm probably going to take russ's suggestion and uh change mine to the tucson bitcoin citadel so mm. do it i dig that yeah. I'll leave it up to you what you want to do with the AZ Bitcoin network, Steven, but <laughs> <laughs> we can, we can brainstorm on that in the group chat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, thanks for coming on guys. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Fun stuff. That was a great conversation. Kelly's prediction, you know, is really scary. And I think I agree with it. Unfortunately, that we're going to see an increase in printing. That's just insane. This is why it's so important for people to, be taking the custody of their own keys and to be getting exposure to Bitcoin, to be getting exposure to money that isn't going to be devalued in the same way that the dollar is and one that you can actually control without having to rely on the banks and, you know, the whole infrastructure that's built to just extract wealth from you. It's really, really exciting that we have a tool like this in a time like this. And uh, yeah, it gives me a lot of hope. Uh, for the future and I hope you enjoyed this conversation make sure to go follow Steven and Kelly on Twitter and thanks for watching